In the realm of true crime, every crime scene tells a story. Every story has its truths. These are the stories from inside the crime scene tape that separates fact from fiction. Arkansas was a place where the CIA, I believe it was, had an undercover covert operation of some sort. But that kind of sent up a red flag. Because here's a guy that was working in Oklahoma with a, a government-style ID card with an alias name on it. And he's going to Mena, Arkansas. Lewis Fawcett, a fugitive hunter for the Texas prison system, followed the trail of an escaped prisoner to a mysterious plane crash outside Mena, Arkansas. Fawcett suspects that thousands of dollars in loot from a bank robbery may have disappeared without a trace from the wreckage. He didn't go over the mountain. I mean, he didn't get enough elevation, apparently. It was a storm with hail and heavy rain and wind, and he wasn't instrument certified. So he just didn't have enough elevation to get up over the top of the mountain. Our story crashes into a conspiracy theory that is still debated today. Before QAnon and before Pizzagate, there was the Mena, Arkansas conspiracy. It surfaced when a reporter probed President Bill Clinton at a White House news conference in 1998 about allegations that the CIA used the small town's airport in the wilds of western Arkansas for drug running while Clinton was governor of Arkansas. Sir, uh, the Republicans are trying to blame you for the existence of a small air base at Mena, Arkansas. This base was set up by George Bush and Oliver North and uh, the CIA to help the Iran-Contras, and they brought in plane load after plane load of cocaine there for sale in the United States. My story begins with Charles J. Woods, a prisoner who escaped from the Texas prison system and remained a fugitive for years. Born in Rock Island, Illinois in 1933, Wood spent his early years on a fur farm operated by his father, who was an insurance salesman. When his parents separated, his father kidnapped him and his younger brother. They hid out with an elderly couple in a swamp. Police intervened and reunited the boys with their mother. She remarried an aeronautical engineer and moved to Dallas in 1943. Woods described himself to a prison psychologist as pretty cheerful and stated that he generally tries to make the best of any situation in which he finds himself. He resented his mother feeling that he was tied to her aprons too much. Woods worked part-time jobs while going to school. He was a paper boy for 10 years, got up at 4.30 every morning to throw newspapers into yards of homes on his route. His hobbies included hunting and fishing, taxidermy, gun collecting, and flying. The high schooler held a private license with a Civil Air Patrol. Woods purchased a 1940 Ford Coupe for $400 for his paper route. And that started him down the road to crime. The car was an oil-burning lemon. 
Woods needed $1,000 for a new motor. His stepfather, who had picked out the car, would not pony up the money for repairs. Woods went home, got a gun, and began a series of armed robberies. He pulled his first holdup at a small grocery store in the Oak Cliff section of Dallas. The teenager walked in at 9 p.m. with a 32 caliber automatic pistol in his hand and walked out with $100. Afterward, he heard that 7-Eleven stores kept more money on hand than its clerks were unarmed. During four more stick-ups at 7-Elevens, Wood stole around $600, still short of the $1,000 he needed. Clerks described him as pretty determined and quite cool. But a witness wrote down his license plate number, and he got caught. Woods rationalized his holdup, saying, I guess I did it because I had a good reputation. Knew no one would suspect me, and I had it figured out mathematically. His parents were in shock. Neighbors thought the easygoing, good-natured kid had just gone nuts, told police that he must have been temporarily insane. The son of the Dallas police chief was Woods' buddy, and the chief helped out after the arrest. Woods' armed robbery charge was changed to robbery by assault with a reduced sentence. In 1951, the 18-year-old was sentenced to serve five years in the Texas prison system. Entrance tests by prison psychologists concluded that Woods' emotional life was blocked almost to the point of paralysis. Identifying with other human beings is extremely difficult for the person. He appears to feel himself somehow different and apart from other people, the psychologist wrote. Diagnosis, anxiety with depression, schizophrenic trends. However, Woods scored high for mechanical and scientific aptitude. His mother wrote to a prison official asking him to help her son so he wouldn't become a hardened criminal behind bars. Woods was assigned to work as a telephone operator at the Walls Unit, Texas' oldest prison in downtown Huntsville, and the site of the death chamber. He asked the prison to put the teacher who taught him at a technical high school for three years on his approved visitation list. A year later, Woods received a full pardon. Vicki Holder, the daughter of Woods' brother, remembers why. My father did mention it to me in my earlier years, probably as a young adult. He did tell me that my Uncle Chuck had robbed a 7-Eleven and got out of it due to the people that stood up on his behalf through the school district. Back home, Woods went to the University of Oklahoma, where he received a geology degree. He taught laboratory science classes there, served in the Air Force Reserve, later worked as a geologist in Anchorage, Alaska. Chuck wanted to be a farmer in Honduras. Okay, so he talked my father into going with him to Honduras. At that time, he took his plane there, secured some land so they could farm on it and bought equipment. Apparently, I think he'd already robbed something. I don't know where, if it was in Alaska or where, but he had a lot of money when he returned. Enough to buy a Cessna plane, a brand new 57 Chevrolet, had all kinds of guns that he bought, hunting rifles, equipment, just things that you go, well, how do you do all of this? 
Anyway, so they set up a farm and started farming there and were there for probably about close to a year, just long enough to start thinking about harvesting the crop. They were harvesting cotton, I believe. And then the rebels came in and took over the government about that time, and they had to leave the country abruptly. When they left, my dad came back to Dallas-Fort Worth, and Chuck went to Houston because he was basically bankrupt. He was about to lose his plane and all of his other equipment. And at that point, I think that was the determining factor in him robbing a bank. He did it, from what I understand, out of desperation. Fugitive hunter Lewis Fawcett heard a different story from Wood's brother. I went to his house and uh, outside of Longview, and we had a nice long visit. Very friendly, very nice, very cooperative. Any question I asked him, he would answer. Of course, when he said they were flying sugarcane back from South America to the United States in a twin-engine plane, I knew immediately what he was talking about. Although his wife was there, I doubt she really knew what he meant. Sugarcane was a euphemism for smuggling cocaine. Whatever his reason for fleeing, Woods left behind a wife and child from El Salvador, never to be seen again. His wife thought he had left to sell an airplane. She later annulled the marriage through the Catholic Church. Now 26 years old and back in Texas, the burly 5-foot, 10-inch tall, brown-haired and blue-eyed, 184-pound Woods decided to pull a bank job. He boarded a Braniff Airlines flight from Dallas to Houston, rented a car at Avis, drove to the nearby Airline State Bank. He stole a car there to make his getaway, drove up to the teller's window, pulled a pistol and told her, this is a holdup. Woods scooped up $7,500 cash into a white paper bag and drove away. The manager gave chase in his car. Woods got into an auto accident while fleeing, and police arrested him. I think Chuck was an adrenaline junkie to some degree, and he liked the adventure and the thrill of doing things that could become very problematic for him. In 1959, Woods was sent to the East Ham Prison Unit to serve a 25-year sentence for armed robbery. At the time, the Ham, as it was known among inmates, was the toughest maximum security prison in Texas. During the Depression, it held Clyde Barrow of the notorious Bonnie and Clyde bank robbery gang. You can hear more about Bonnie and Clyde in my April 11th, 2023 episode, The Enduring Fascination of Bonnie and Clyde, A Love Story Gone Wrong. And you can hear just how tough East Ham was from David Stacks, one of its former wardens, in my November 28th, 2023 episode, Hard Time in Hell Among Texas' Most Dangerous Prisoners. I've placed links in the show notes. Upon entering East Ham, Woods received a new evaluation. The prison psychologist stated that Woods tends to be selfish, self-centered, and overly ambitious. It would appear that his ambitions exceed his ability. His ego is strong but rigid. Concepts of right and wrong are poorly organized, and the inmate is not a mental case. 
Wood's mother appealed to a prison official for religious and psychiatric counseling. Please help me to help him, she wrote. We will never recover from the heartache and disappointment until he has found his way back and understands his problems. Woods was assigned as a bookkeeper for the assistant warden. There was hope for reform. Woods asked the prison to approve his old college dean on his official mailing list. He said he wanted to return to OU for advanced studies. He convinced the warden that uh, he was a surveyor. First, he went to got a job as a trustee for the warden. And then he convinced the warden that a good job came up on the outside. He was a surveyor and he'd like to put in for it. Well, they selected him because apparently he was very personable. And they selected him to work outside with, with one guard and I think two or more inmates with him. In May of 1961, 18 months after his incarceration, Woods sent a handwritten letter to a prison official asking to be assigned to a field party for a state surveyor. He wrote, Upon my release, I would like to continue in this field and take my state examinations. I received my basic surveying training at the University of Oklahoma. I have an engineering background, and I believe my superiors will agree that I can do good work. If I am not considered a security risk, I should like to prove myself if given the opportunity. Two months later, in late October of 1961, Charles Woods escaped, and his whereabouts was a mystery to the prison system for 34 years. He and two other inmates were working together on a construction survey crew under the supervision of one guard. They were laying out a new road to the entrance of the Ellis One Maximum Security Unit, then home to Texas Death Row. Around 10 a.m., Woods and an inmate named Isaac Roberts took the guard hostage. Roberts slipped up behind the guard who was standing beside a pickup truck and put a homemade knife called a shiv to his throat. They forced the guard across a road into the woods and tied up his hands and feet. Woods held a shiv on two other inmates working on the project and tied them up with a belt and strips of a shirt. Then Woods and Roberts fled in the prison pickup. Searchers found it hidden 10 miles away in underbrush. The next day, Roberts was spotted behind a store located 20 miles from the prison in the small town of Oakhurst. A corrections officer and two citizens captured the inmate. Woods was seen running toward another town named Point Blank. Bloodhounds followed his scent through a schoolyard and into an old school bus body where they found the shiv. But the dogs lost his trail. What I understand, he went into the bottoms. He was, you know, out in the kind of the wooded low-lying areas and he hid underwater and breathed through a wreath while they had search parties and dogs looking for him. He did that for several days until they gave up the hunt out that in that direction. And when he felt it was safe, he made his way to a farm. It wasn't too far away, and he found a car. He stole the car. I don't know if he hot-wired it or what he did to start it, but he found some clothes hanging on a clothesline and some boots at the back door. So he put on civilian clothes and took the car to Grand Prairie, Texas, where my father worked. And at that time, my father was working for LTV, and he called him one evening when dad, dad worked the second shift, and 
told him he had escaped and he needed him to come follow him in that car and take it to and to dispose of the car. And LTV was the aircraft manufacturer that's located on the south side of Dallas. Yes, yes. Uh-huh. And they dispose of the car, and then what becomes of your, your uncle? Well, they took the car to the Red River and disposed of it there, and then my uncle got in the car with my father, and my father took him to Little Rock, Arkansas, and rented a little apartment or something for him to live in and got him established, set him up there, and left him. And uh, at that point in time, I guess that's when Chuck found a way to assume a new identity. Anyway, um, several days later, Chuck called my father back and told him that he was living across the street from the Little Rock Sheriff. And he said, you need to come get me and move me out of here. So Dad went back several days later and, and got him and took him to Tulsa, Oklahoma, and established him and left him there. And that's where he started working his way and got some kind of a job and met his future wife and married her. He knew that he had to marry and not be a single man not to be discovered. Woods changed his identity to Richard Arthur Mills, even got a birth certificate for it. Five months after the escape, he was arrested in Cheyenne, Wyoming for violating a city ordinance but he was released before his true identity was discovered. Woods then used his alias to get married. He lived in Tulsa long enough to find a wife and marry her. It's, I'm not really sure of how long they stayed in Tulsa, but I don't think it was probably more than a year or two. And from there they moved to Denver, Colorado because he loved the mountains and he loved to hunt. Wood started a new life with a new identity. It would take 34 years for the Texas prison system to start looking for him again. I'll be back after this break with the rest of the story. I'll be back after this break. Hello, this is Robert, and I want to ask a small favor. Will you please tell your friends who love true crime to follow the True Crime Reporter podcast? As you know, it's one of the few podcasts where you can hear raw, unfiltered accounts from law enforcement experts, victims, and even convicted criminals. And please sign up for my free newsletter. The form is on every page of my website. Finally, I am so thankful to my Apple listeners who have given the podcast five-star reviews. Your reviews on all of the channels are extremely helpful in spreading the word about this podcast. Now, back to our episode. In 1996, 34 years after Charles Woods escaped from a Texas prison, Lewis Fawcett started looking for the fugitive. CDC Inspector General's office opened up these old prison uh, escape cases and gave them to me to work. And so I started working on those. Fawcett discovered that Woods had worked as an engineering inspector for a contractor at the Naval Ammunition Depot in McAllister, Oklahoma in 1969. His official picture ID card identified Woods as the alias Richard Arthur Mills, working for the architectural engineering firm of 
Hudgens, Thompson, and Ball of Oklahoma City. He stole a friend of his name, an ID. The name that he was using had belonged to a friend, and I understand they were upset about that. Woods, a.k.a. Richard Mills, had lived in Midwest City, a suburb of Oklahoma City, for a year and a half. He was a Boy Scout leader and attended St. Matthew's Methodist Church. But he was a good friend, supposedly, of one of the government officials there in the county uh, where he was living. They were tight. They would go flying. The other guy had a plane. He would fly the plane. Uh, the company that he worked for had a plane. They would go to mean him and someone else would go back and forth to Mina on fishing trips. Fawcett suspected Woods was using the Mina, Arkansas airport as a hub for flying around the country to commit bank robberies. Yeah, sure. He was going to Arkansas, Mina, Arkansas in that area and robbing banks would be my guess because that's what he did for a living, mm-hmm. you know? And so he and somebody else, because from what the brother said, they had a pickup truck out there that they kept in a hangar at the airport. And so when they flew out there in, in the, this friend's plane, they would go fishing. I drove out and looked at that area and asked a lot of questions. Fawcett discovered that in mid-November of 1969, eight years after Woods had escaped from prison, the 35-year-old pilot had crashed into the base of Black Fork Mountain. 25 miles northwest of Mena, Arkansas. At the controls of a single-engine Cessna 172 and not instrument-rated, Woods, a.k.a. Mills, at 4.30 p.m. flew into a violent thunderstorm on his way from Mount Ida, Arkansas to McAllister, Oklahoma, where he worked at the Naval Ammunition Depot. He skirted the tops of pine trees and sheared off the plane's wings, then collided with a large cedar tree, throwing the plane's engine and woods out of the fuselage. Well, I knew Mena, Arkansas was a place where the uh, CIA, I believe it was, had a on the cover, covert operation of some sort. But that was years later. I don't know exactly here, but there was a big investigation and so forth. But that kind of sent up a red flag. Because here's a guy that was working in Oklahoma with a, a government-style ID card with an alias name on it, and he's going to Mena, Arkansas. And his fingerprints on the back of that ID card that he had, and I had it verified that it was his fingerprint. So me being the suspicious type that I am, I started kind of looking at it at that angle. But there wasn't much point in going any further with it because... I determined that he was deceased. When Sarah McClendon, a longtime Washington curmudgeon, member of the press corps from Texas, renowned for her off-the-wall questions, sprung the Mena, Arkansas question on President Clinton, it opened up a murky affair. Sir, uh, the Republicans are trying to blame you for the existence of a small air base at Mena, Arkansas. This base was set up by George Bush and Oliver North and uh, the CIA to help the Iran Contras, and they brought in plane load after plane load of cocaine there for sale in the United States. And then they took the money and bought weapons and took them back to the Contras, all of which was illegally, as you know, under the Bolin Act. But tell me, did they tell you that this had to be in existence because of national security? Well, let me answer the question. No, they didn't tell me anything about it. They didn't say anything to me about it. 
the airport in question and all the events in question were the subject of state and federal inquiries. It was primarily a matter for federal jurisdiction. The state really had next to nothing to do with it. The local prosecutor did conduct an investigation based on what was within the jurisdiction of state law. The rest of it was under jurisdiction of the United States attorneys who were appointed successively by previous administrations. We had nothing, zero, to do with it, and everybody who's ever looked into it knows that. In the shadowed corners of Mena, Arkansas, a complex web of intrigue entwined Adler Berryman Seal, a.k.a. Barry Seal, a pilot whose life story reads like a thriller novel. Seal had a Vietnam War era link to the CIA. His saga began in 1981 when he established his drug smuggling operation in Mena. He claimed to have earned upwards of $50 million by shuttling 1,000 pounds of cocaine monthly from Colombia. However, in 1983, his high-flying criminal enterprise crash-landed when the Drug Enforcement Agency, DEA, apprehended Seal on charges of drug smuggling. In a dramatic pivot, Seal turned government informant. He played a crucial role in gathering intelligence on the notorious Medellin cartel leaders in Colombia. His collaboration with U.S. authorities included participation in drug operations to Nicaragua, coinciding with the Reagan administration's intensifying efforts against the Sandinista government there. It was a proxy war between the U.S. and the Soviet Union which supported the Sandinistas. In a 1984 operation, the CIA installed two hidden 35mm cameras on board SEAL's C-123K cargo plane. It was a DEA sting operation that captured images of a Sandinista official loading Colombian cocaine. In 1986, three Colombian hitmen armed with machine guns killed SEAL as he sat behind the wheel of his white Cadillac in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. It was payback for being a government snitch. During this time, I reported on tank exercises conducted by the Texas National Guard near the Nicaraguan border. It was saber-rattling by the Reagan administration. But it all came undone when a C-123 cargo plane, once owned by SEAL and flown by an Arkansas pilot, was shot down over Nicaragua, loaded with supplies and ammunition for the anti-Sandinista Contra rebels operating out of Honduras. Documents and the presence of Eugene Hassenfuss, a surviving crew member, implicated the CIA and the White House, entangling them in the notorious Iran-Contra affair. Later, in response to a congressional investigation in 1996, the CIA stated that it participated in a classified two-week joint training operation with another federal agency at the Mena Intermountain Airport. It also used airport businesses to perform routine maintenance on aircraft in which the CIA ownership was hidden. The spy agency's inspector general found no evidence that the CIA was associated with money laundering, narcotics trafficking, arms smuggling, or other illegal activities at or around Mena, Arkansas at any time, 
contradicting all of the conspiracy theories. So was convicted bank robber, prison escapee, and pilot Charles Woods involved in clandestine activity at Mina? We will probably never know. After all, his wife didn't know her husband's real name was not Richard Arthur Mills until he was killed in a plane crash. Well, I know she was very upset when she when they gave her the information. My aunt and my father set her down after the funeral and gave her the update on his background and what had occurred and what was real. And she was very upset, very angry. She was in mourning, of course, lost her husband just recently. And she was pregnant, expecting their second child at the time. Now from my reporter's notebook, some closing thoughts. You may be wondering how the CIA and DEA found an airstrip in the remote mountains of little old Mena, Arkansas. It was the base of operations in 1967 for conducting low-level flying tests for the air war in Vietnam. It was called Joint Task Force Two. I know this because I was there as a student intern. There's a new nugget for conspiracy theorists. Please tell your friends who love true crime that they can bypass secondhand tales and get their true crime fix here with authentic stories straight from the source. Tell them that True Crime Reporter is one of the few podcasts where you can hear raw, unfiltered accounts from law enforcement victims and even convicted criminals. And sign up for my free newsletter on the homepage of TrueCrimeReporter.com. It's your gateway to a world of knowledge and awareness in the realm of true crime and your personal safety. Thanks for listening, and until we meet again, be prepared, don't get scared. This is Robert Riggs reporting.